Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. As an analyst, there was this feeling of, uh, I think, a profound anxiety that we were going to get something wrong. And working on Syria, we felt a lot of pressure to write honest and objective analysis, but also to not to not make mistakes and to give the president and, and those around him the best possible information. One of the key themes I look at in the book, both from a CIA standpoint, but especially from a Syrian standpoint, is how do people behave in situations where they don't really have a lot of control or agency in a setting where, you know, you're sort of beholden to these larger forces that seem to be dictating policy or ripping the country apart. It was definitely one of the one of the things I was most interested in exploring in this book. David McCloskey is the author of the new novel, Damascus Station. David is also a former CIA analyst. I just sat down to talk to David about his novel, his career, and the issue he worked on that led him to write his new book. We'll be right back after a break. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. David, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on Intelligence Matters. Great to be here, Michael. Thank you. So, David, your book, Damascus Station, a novel, was published a couple weeks ago. It was released to terrific reviews. David Petraeus, um, our former boss, uh, former CIA director, said, and I'm going to quote here, 
Damascus Station is the best spy novel I have ever read. That's high praise. As you know, that's high praise coming from David. And I'm wondering, when you were working at CIA, did anyone ever tell you, David, that's the best piece of analysis I've ever read? David, that's the best PDB I've ever read? Um, <laughs> no, it was, uh, I would, you know, there was, uh, you know, praise given to, to many of the, the products that I wrote, but it was always a bit more measured uh, than General Petraeus's wonderful uh, comment on on my novel. Uh, always a little bit different, I think, in the, the analytical context as opposed to the world of, of spy. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so, David, what what's the book about? Without giving anything away, of course, and why did you write it? Yeah, so the the book it is a spy novel. It's set in the early years of the Syrian civil war. And it is about a CIA case officer named Sam and his Syrian recruit, Miriam, who break one of the cardinal rules and fall into a forbidden relationship. When they go into Damascus to track down the killer of another CIA case officer, they come across a very dark secret at the heart of the Syrian regime. Uh, And it's really a book about love, loyalty, betrayal, and uh, what it means to be human in the middle of a very dark war. And and I wrote it, Michael, uh, I think for a couple of reasons. I mean, one was I had always wanted to write ever since I was a kid and had never just found the, the right combination of inspiration and time to sit down and do it. But more specifically to this book, I was really interested. I covered Syria extensively while at CIA. And the kind of work and writing that that we do, of course, as you well know, is is highly analytical. And when I left, I was really interested in exploring the human aspects of that conflict from a variety of different perspectives and really understanding and, and processing, I think, in some ways, what it would feel like to live through a conflict like that um, and, and the very kind of hard and troubling choices that people would have to make, um, and really to explore the wide range of human emotion and experience that a conflict like that brings out everything from heroism and bravery all the way to, you know, the sort of tragedy and brutality of the, of the war. So I really wanted to bring that to life through these stories in the book. And then I also wanted, I, I'm a longtime diehard reader of all kinds of spy thrillers and spy fiction going back to when I was very young. And after, you know, I'd say about two days of working at the CIA, you quickly realize that almost everything you read is nothing like the real work of intelligence. Right. And as I spent more time at the agency, I just realized that the, the actual business of intelligence is highly dramatic. The one example being the, the relationship between a uh, case officer and their asset. I mean, that is a intimate, deep relationship that allows you to explore all kinds of emotions. And a lot of the work of intelligence is quite dramatic. So I wanted to write a book. I mean, it's fictional and I took some liberties for sure, but I wanted to write a book that brought to life or into the open as much as I could responsibly a bit more of the work of, of CIA to make that feel real to people. David, you said you were a, a, a fan of spy novels, and I wonder, besides Damascus Station, what's your favorite novel of all time? 
gosh, that is a hard question. I um, I think it is probably Little Drummer Girl by John Le Carre, which uh, has recently. Uh, there's also a great streaming show based on on the book. Uh, and there was a movie too. And a movie too, exactly. I think that book. Uh, the, the wonderful thing about Le Carre is that he's he's a spy novelist, but but not really. He's just a phenomenal novelist and storyteller. But I, I love that story for the um, the human relationships in there and uh, uh, the sort of plumbing of of the depths of a relationship between a, a, a case officer and, a, and an agent, which I think is fascinating and. Uh, and just so well told by him. That is probably my favorite, my favorite book. You know, one of the things that I've always wondered about spy novels and I guess about mysteries too, is when you sit down to write, do you have the arc of the story in your mind? Um, do you know where you're going? Do you know all the twists and turns? Do you know the secrets that are going to be revealed? How does all that work? Yeah, I, I so when I sat down to write Damascus Station, I had a short outline, and I had a an idea of a, a highly climactic scene that I wanted to occur at the end of the book. And I would say, upon uh, you know sitting down to actually write the thing, all of that got blown up, <laughs> and. What I discovered, um, and I think this is different for different writers, but for for me personally, what I discovered was that the writing process was something akin to an archaeological dig, where I kind of knew where I wanted to dig, in this case, the CIA and Syria and the war. And I had some idea of the characters, but as I wrote more, I found that they surprised me. And I found that, you know, there were times where I would be digging in a particular part of that site for an extended period of time. And I would realize at the end that, you know, writing my outline wasn't the best story I could tell. And the characters would reveal uh, as weird and sort of mystical as that sounds, maybe that the characters would, would guide the story and, and would point in the right direction. And so I found that it was helpful to have the outline, but the results in, in Damascus station bears almost no resemblance to it. And it was a much more, um, improvisational process as I went along uh, to kind of to kind of build the story. There's a great E.L. Doctorow line about writing novels, which is something to the order of it's like a long car trip in the middle of a storm at night with the headlights on. You know, you don't see much of the road, but you can drive the whole way uh, in that manner. And um, I think that's what my process was was like. So David, I would love to jump backwards in time here and have you walk us through your career. You know, what brought you to the CIA? What did you work on? Yeah. So I was in, I was recruited at uh, college. I went to a small liberal arts school in the Midwest that is not typically a uh, school at which CIA recruits, but when I was a sophomore, the gentleman who ran the office, the CIA analytic office, formerly known as NISA, Near East and South Asian Analysis, was a alum uh, of my school. And 
when he was on a recruiting trip going through the Chicagoland area, he came by and did a talk about the CIA and working in intelligence. And I was a uh, 19-year-old international relations major who, you know, listened to that and thought, yeah, it sounded pretty darn cool. So I applied and joined as an undergraduate intern, actually, as a 19-year-old. Mm-hmm. And uh, worked pretty, I I did two summers and then was an analyst for about six years. And during that entire time at the agency, I was focused on Syria and and the Middle East and counterterrorism issues. Um, And, uh, and then, you know, I up until that point, you know, like I said, I, I joined as a uh, I was polygraphed and joined as a 19-year-old. Um, my major experience working in the private sector had been when I was a cashier at Wendy's <laughs> in high school. And I uh, I got to a point where I thought I wanted to see what it was like outside of CIA and, and DC. And, and I, I loved working at the at the agency. It's a, it's a wonderful place, as I hope people who read Damascus Station know uh, that speaks to them. Uh, but I, I joined a consulting firm uh, after leaving CIA. And I had a few months in between uh, the two jobs. And so I sat down in a coffee shop in DC and just started to write about Syria and, and the agency. And I put together about 100,000 words in, in three or four months in between the two jobs and then started the consulting work, which you now is pretty intense. And so I put the manuscript aside and, and did a consulting job primarily focused on uh, transportation and, and logistics and energy companies. Uh, so very separate from the work that I've been doing at, at the CIA. Uh, but I kind of had always had this itch to go back to the, to the writing to see if I could at least finish the book. And so I had an opportunity uh, for a number of reasons uh, to take some time uh, about two years ago, uh, to take some time and, and sort of focus on writing. And I went back to that old manuscript and I looked at it and uh, I reread it and I thought, man, this is terrible. <laughs> this is really awful. Um, and I put, I put it aside and I thought, you know, if I've got this time, I'm going to be a little bit more structured about writing a book that's fun for me and, and that also might be fun for others to read. And so I, I started writing and uh, the the result of that is is Damascus Station. I'm now uh, working on another book. It's not Syria focused. It's um, got a whole different crop of characters and is more focused on imagining the next phase of the U.S. Russia mm-hmm. spy war. But uh, I'm now working on that and uh, and writing full time. So let's let's just bracket your time at the agency. What what year did you start and what year did you leave? I just want to get a sense of the Syria timeline here. So I started covering it uh, as an intern in 2006. And then I left in the spring of 2014, uh, well into the unrest and the, and the civil war. And did you work on it from both the political perspective as well as the, the counterterrorism perspective? I did. Yes. Uh, most of my work during the most of my work was from a political standpoint. 
but I did some rotations inside CTC that were focused on it from a counterterrorism angle, mostly prior to the conflict um, when it was when Syrian CT issues were much more about the foreign fighter networks um, going into Iraq. So David, if it's okay with you, I'd, I'd, I'd like to dig into your experience a little bit more about working on Syria. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how you, right, not the CIA, but you from an analyst perspective saw the evolution of events in Syria, you know, how you thought about them at the time, how you think about them today, you know, from sort of the the start of the civil war on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I covered Syria for a long time when it was sort of a sleepy second tier Middle Eastern autocracy, at least from a U.S. policymaker standpoint. So the kinds of, you know, our focus and analysis on it was much more about its foreign policy and its relationships relationships in the region and, you know, the problems it created for us. And uh, when the Arab Spring began, uh, so this would have been late 2010, early 2011, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think, so I, I spent a decent amount of time in the region in, in the run-up to that on a number of TDYs. And it was, from a personal standpoint, the beginning of this was extremely exciting. Uh, and, and the region for so long had been, had felt maybe a little bit, uh, and in particular Syria, it had felt a little bit kind of frozen and, and stale in some respects. And obviously that wasn't really true, but it felt that way as an analyst uh, sometimes. And there was this sense of excitement and, and promise uh, in the region that I think was pretty infectious. And it, it, we talked at the time with some analysts who had covered the fall of the wall and, and the collapse of communism across Eastern Europe. And you kind of had this sense that you were seeing the, tectonic plates of history shifting kind of in real time. And that was really exciting. And and being in the Middle East for part of that period, you also could just see it and feel it. Um, I remember watching a lot of the protests in Tahrir Square from uh, another Middle Eastern capital. And I would sort of look around and watch what how these people were viewing it. And you just got the sense that Two months earlier, everyone had felt like this wasn't possible, and now the kind of wall of fear in this country was breaking down, and and there was a promise for change and something better, which I think was very very infectious. I remember that, yeah. I would also say at the time, uh, as an analyst, there was this feeling of, uh, I think, a profound anxiety that we were going to get something wrong, and a uh, a feeling perhaps that you know this there wasn't any way around this, but a feeling that we had been caught a little bit flat footed by Tunisia and Egypt and working on Syria, we felt a lot of pressure to write honest and objective analysis and, but also to not, you know, to not make mistakes and, and to give the president and and those around him the best possible information. So there was this kind of, I think, duality of infectious excitement, but also a tremendous amount of responsibility that we felt to to make the right calls and to to provide the best analysis possible to policymakers early on in the crisis. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with David. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So, David, the big inflection points, right? The arrival of the Iranians and Hezbollah, the arrival of the Russians. Talk a little bit about those key inflection points. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, broadly, I think the there were a number during the arc of the conflict, and you've you've pointed a few of the, of the big ones out. I think even going back a little bit further, there was so the the protest movement started in in the spring of 2011, and I think that was obviously a large inflection point. The wall of fear, as you know, said, broke down and. Uh, people got out onto the streets and protested in ways they hadn't before. Um, For that first year, there was a kind of um, waffling response by the regime. There were growing protests. There was a sort of bubbling insurgency. And I think in the early part of 2012, there was an inflection point on the regime side where they moved to a really a kind of scorched earth military campaign. Right. um, That also brought in the Iranians and from 2012 to 2015, I would say, or some, somewhere around there, um, you saw the sort of steady, steady erosion of regime control um, and the growing kind of militarization and militiaization of the conflict and a variety of foreign actors pouring in support, uh, the Iranians and Russians doing it in a fairly directive way and, um, you know, others, the Saudis, the Qataris, for example, doing in Turks in a bit more of a haphazard way. I think that a huge inflection point, uh, as you mentioned, was the Russian intervention in 2015, which at that point in time, the Syrian regime controlled, estimates vary, but maybe around 20 to 25% of Syrian territory. So it had been significantly beaten back. And the Russian intervention uh, set in motion a four or five year period where the Syrian regime clawed back most of the territory. Now, today they only control maybe 70 to 75% of it, but that Russian intervention really turned the tide and and brought the regime back from from the brink of of destruction. Um, I, I would also argue, just going back maybe a little bit further into 2013, which I neglected to mention, that um, there was a period of time early on in the crisis where it was possible that we would get a fairly full-throated U.S. military intervention in Syria or debated. And there was a serious inflection point when we very clearly decided not to do that after the chemical attack, the sarin attack in uh, Ghouta, a Damascus suburb in August of 2013, when the Obama administration effectively decided to punt the decision to Congress and we did not uh, conduct a, a punitive or regime damaging strike in response to that. So, um, you know, I, I think that there were a number of cases, a number of points in this conflict where things could have decisively gone against the Syrian regime and that did not pan out. As you know, better than anybody, analysts are trained not to 
let their policy views affect their analysis, but that doesn't mean that analysts don't have views, right, of what the United States should be doing. And I'm just wondering today with 2020 hindsight, how you think about the evolution of President Obama's approach to Syria and what we might have done differently, what more risk we might have taken that might have changed the outcome? Well, this is really the uh, the $64,000 counterfactual question on Syria. Um, and it's, it's one that, you know, I, I think, let me say first off that I don't envy at all the decisions that the Obama administration had to make around Syria. This was happening in a extremely volatile regional context. And uh, it, it was all happening sort of at a time or around a time when the administration was really trying to extricate itself from from heavy involvement in the Middle East, and it found itself sort of drawn back in. Um, that said, I think that when you look at when you look at our Syria policy in those early years, there was a tremendous gap between our objectives and the national power that we were willing to commit to achieve right. them. Right. And anytime that happens, it's just a recipe for confusion on the part of allies and enemies alike, which is counterproductive and a loss of credibility. And I think that, you know, we we said we wanted Assad to go. We made that pronouncement in August of 2011. We said we wanted to support an opposition against him. Um, we really didn't do things to achieve those objectives. And, and I think that, you know, that gap was always very problematic. Now, when it comes to, you know, the red line and, and our posture there, I think that you know, we should have, we could have conducted a set of punitive strikes on Assad that would have stopped short of having to depose his regime. And I think it was a real mistake not to do that, especially after we had sort of committed U.S. credibility to, um, you know, to just to stopping him from, from using those weapons or from at least punishing him for doing so. Now, when I think about more broadly, should we have tried to unseat the regime or done more to support the opposition or to destabilize them? Um, I think that I say no. And the reason for that is because if I look just at our track record in Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya, we are uh, adept at breaking things and we could have no doubt broken Assad. But we have not shown a, you know, a track record of being able to really build cohesive, stable, fairly representative governing entities back from the rubble of what we destroy. And I think in Syria, to believe that it would have been different, you would have to think that there was a set of local partners who would have been able to come alongside us in that effort. And when we looked at the opposition in those early years, the most credible actors on the ground um, were unfortunately Salafi jihadist groups that were well organized and well trained and well funded, uh, and and the opposition that we would have found more, you know, amenable to U.S. interests was fragmented and weak and um, would not have been able to carry water on the ground for us in a fight against Assad. So I think we would have ended up with a situation where 
you know, you sort of, you break it, you buy it. And we would have been, we would have owned it. And I, and I don't think that the dynamics today with us owning it um, would necessarily be better for U.S. interests. And so I think we were right not to, not to depose Assad, um, but wrong uh, not to respond to the use of chemical weapons um, and, and to, to frankly be more punitive with him or create some kind of strategic dis- deterrence for the use of those weapons. Yeah, on your first point, I think that's exactly where President Obama came out personally and why he made the decision he made not to intervene um, much more significantly. But, you know, to your earlier point, that that says to me that we should never have announced that our policy was to get rid of Assad, right? Because that set in train a bunch of expectations on the ground that that we were not able to support or not willing to support at the end of the day. I think I think that's exactly right. And if I go back to that time period and really think about how the administration was looking at the region and looking at Syria, I think that the original sin of of our policy and something that really drove, as I said, that gap between objectives and where we were willing to commit resources was this sense of um, inevitability to his demise. And when you look at when you looked at the region at the time, you know, Ben Ali had fled in January. Mubarak stepped down in February, I believe, of 2011. There were massive protests in in Yemen, in Bahrain, I think in eastern Saudi. There were uh, Libya had had broken out, and so there was this sense, I think, of these dominoes are falling, and Assad's going to be gone at some point. So we can kind of say the right things without having to do much to affect the outcome. And over time, it you know became clear that well, the regime actually had a significant amount of resources to use to keep itself in power. It had the willingness to use them, and um, you know that gap widened as we we continued to say the same things rhetorically without without backing them up. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Um, so, David, when I read the book, you're right. There's a strong sense of loyalty and betrayal in the book. Um, I won't say any more than that. And when I was reading it, I was wondering to what extent you were thinking about how the opposition might have felt about the United States at that time. Is there is there any truth to that? Well, I... I would certainly be lying if I said that the experiences in particular working on the war didn't dramatically and, and sort of greatly inform 
the writing of, of this book. And I think I try to capture in a couple points without giving too much away um, the sense that we made a lot of promises to many different people in the region. I think this is what I was really interested in dealing with in the book was that, you know, there's a, there's a policy discussion we could have about the U.S. keeping its word and its credibility, but there were also promises made to individuals who were standing up to a government that they hated and sought to, to, to bring down. And I wish that we hadn't said some of those things. And I wanted to deal authentically in the book with, you know, how those relationships, the, the, the human to human relationships sort of pan out in a world where there's also high level kind of statecraft and policy decisions happening above, above them that they don't really control. Um, and so I think one of the key themes I, I look at in the book, both from a CIA standpoint, but especially from a Syrian standpoint is how do people behave in situations where they don't really have a lot of control or agency and, and how do they protect people they love and their family? And, and um, you know, how do they love others in, in a setting where, you know, you're sort of beholden to these larger forces that seem to be dictating policy or ripping the country apart. It was definitely one of the, one of the things I was most interested in exploring in this book. Do you still follow events in Syria? Do you still pay attention to them? I do. I do. I, um, I had to go through a period of detox after I left because I, it had become upsetting and hard to watch. And, you know, it wasn't what I was focused on really at all in my consulting work. And so I took a little bit of a break, but, um, in particular, as I was writing the book, starting a few years ago, I, uh, I started to dive back into it and, and, and follow it. And, um, you know, the, the book is dedicated first to my wife, um, but, but secondly, to the, to the people of Syria. I feel a very uh, strong emotional connection to, the, to them and to the conflict. And, and, and I'm hopeful that in, in some way, um, you know, it, the, there will be a, a, a future better than the past, as I, as I write the book. What do you think the future portends in, and why does it matter to the United States? I think, you know, from a geostrategic standpoint, not a human standpoint, but a geostrategic one. I often do have to remind myself, and I think we as analysts had to remind ourselves that, you know, Syria is a relatively small country that doesn't move global energy markets that, you know, thankfully does not have a nuclear weapon uh, and with which we have very few economic relations or cultural relations whatsoever. So Syria is a, a small place from a geostrategic standpoint. And I think that, you know, from a policy standpoint, it's just important to to think about that when we talk about the, the U.S. response. But uh, when we look at the conflict today and sort of where it's headed, I think that, you know, civil wars either end through political settlement or through military victory for, for one party. And it seems clear to me today that a political settlement is not in the cards. All the parties on the ground have wildly divergent interests and the UN brokered process in Geneva has gone nowhere and seems to be going nowhere. Um, from a military standpoint, you know, the country is effectively divided right. into four so zones of, of influence. Uh, the Syrian regime is controls most of the territory, but not most of the natural resources. And 
there's parts of the country that are occupied by us and our allies and by the Turks and their allies and uh, Canton that the rebels still hold. So it's the idea or concept of a unified Syria at this point in time is just that it's a concept. Um, but I think we're at a point where, you know, no one can really win and also no one thinks that they can fully lose. And so we're at a kind of a stalemate uh, in the conflict today. And I think there's a tendency because we look at Syria as if it's, you know, a, a real country that, of course, its natural state is to be unified and put back together that we think, oh, well, the war has to end at some point. And I remember we we looked actually during the early days of the conflict at some of the political science research on civil wars. And, you know, the average duration of one is 10 years. We've hit that in Syria. But they go on for much longer when you have a bunch of different factions on the ground and when you have foreign parties involved. And the Lebanese civil war lasted next door, lasted for 15 years. You could argue that Afghanistan was in civil war for much of the 80s through today. And Sri Lanka lasted for about 25 years, I think. So Mm -hmm. there's no real reason why the conflict needs to end anytime soon. Um, And I I think we're at a point where the lines in patrol are fairly well drawn for now. um, And where many of the different parties can get what they want by just sitting tight. So I think, unfortunately, we're sort of headed for more of the same in Syria, barring, you know, some kind of unforeseen event. David, let me come back to the book. I want to ask you um, how the CIA pre-publication review process went for you. Well, I, uh, the headline here is it, w- it went very well. I have found the PRB to be extremely responsive to, you know, I think they read the book. Honestly, Michael, I think they got through it in like three days. Well, I like to think that well. because the person reviewing it had so much fun, but they're, <laughs> they're also just very efficient. Uh, and they, you know, I, I also was, I think, smart about what I chose to include and not include and had a sense of what would be, you know, responsible versus irresponsible. And so I tried to, you know, not include things that would be irresponsible and that they would have objection to. Um they made a few changes to not to storylines or anything really big like that, but they edited out some detail that I think was, was appropriate. Um, and my favorite part of the, the PRB process is that they will return a PDF that is, has the blacked out highlighter on it. Yeah. Which <laughs> I remember I always, that. <laughs> it's got kind of a vintage cold war vibe to it. that I, I appreciate. Um, but I've, I have found working with the PRB to be, you know, they're, they're pros at this, they're efficient. And, and I didn't have any issues with, uh, with Damascus station. Well, David, good luck with this book. I think it's going to do extraordinarily well. I encourage my listeners to, to read the book and good luck in writing your next book. Thank you for joining us. The book is Damascus station. The author is David McCloskey. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Great to be with you. That was David McCloskey. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News.
It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.